Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hi, I'm Jo Evans and welcome to Cross Section. Welcome, in fact, to episode 10 of series five, the series finale and our 45th episode of Cross Section. I want to take a minute before we get going in today's podcast to say thank you to our listeners. I was reading through some of the emails we get in and I was so deeply, deeply encouraged that some of you have felt emboldened to bring Jesus into conversation with your friends and colleagues because of listening to this podcast. For us, that is a huge answer to prayer and a testimony to the power of God and his work through his people by his spirit. Thank you for coming for the ride as we work out how to do a slightly different type of podcast and for the encouragement you've shared with us. Our prayer is that many more will come to know Jesus and we sincerely hope that the work we do here helps even a little bit. Right, emotional bit over, getting on to the first thing we're going to talk about today, team, was an exciting event that you all went to. I didn't, don't worry, I'm not bitter. But on Tuesday morning at 7.45am was the parliamentary prayer breakfast. Danny, could you set the scene for those of us who weren't privileged enough to join? <laughs> well, this is an, an annual event that takes place in Westminster Hall, the oldest part of Parliament. Christians and other MPs join together with Christian leaders, Christian organisation leaders from across the UK to pray together, to worship to hear about God and to pray for our politics, for our parliament, for our government. Around 700 people were up bright and early in Westminster Hall. 180 or so MPs were in attendance, which is about more than a quarter of the MPs in parliament, which is an amazing turnout, really. And then it was a chance to worship and to pray and to hear Dr. Amy or Ewing talk about the power of forgiveness in public life. And so it's a prayer breakfast. So does that mean only Christians go or people of faith? Alicia, who who was there? Yeah, it's definitely a mix. Immediately on my table, I had a Conservative MP, a Democratic Unionist MP, church leaders from Dagenham, which is a neighbouring borough to myself, and I think a Labour MP. So there's definitely a mix and a blend. And there's also members of Parliament who hold different faith traditions or have no faith at all who also attend this event. And we're all set around circular tables, good breakfast coffee and tea on the go so yeah it's just a great opportunity to just engage and of course this was the event that was the catalyst for a lot of parliament resignations last year peter i know you had a particularly exciting morning um why don't you tell us about who you got to chat to well it wasn't because of the breakfast because it wasn't an ulster fry and there were some complaints in my table about that <laughs> but yeah the prime minister does attend the, the prayer breakfast often does the rounds one of the joys you're often sitting with your local mp and, and some of our local mps were there so one of them is, is bold enough just to go and pull them over so we got to to meet the prime minister briefly but it was lovely just to kind of meet him, engage with him and just chat very briefly about what was happening in Northern Ireland because that's where most of the people on my table were from. And that's part of the reason for being there is the Prime Minister, I think, always or more often than not attends. They don't always stay for the whole thing. They're not always there. And as we said last year, sometimes it has seismic implications on government, but it is wonderful to gather together to sing, to praise, to worship in that incredible Westminster Chapel. Part of it, like, is it is amazing. And these are small but important, I think, moments in the public square. 
I, I want to ask a more important question, but a less important question. I'm really curious when you, you mentioned it as worship there, like does everyone join in? Because some like, for example, when you're at a wedding where it's a big mix of Christians and non-Christians, you can hear like some people just kind of mumbling along or kind of miming the words. Like, does everyone go for it? Certainly where I was, they were they were going for it. There was a good volume. Now, of course, these the beautiful vaulted building, and I presume it is partly designed around those acoustics. So it, it I thought it sounded good where I was. It was a, a great band, I think, from LST and some other places helping to lead us. But there was real volume, and we were singing powerful words just about, I mean, absolutely focused on Jesus. These were powerful hymns. So I was really enjoying the worship. The hands were up. It was great. That's a, that's a cool image. I am aware that the theme for this breakfast was around the the role of forgiveness in public life. Alicia, can you tell us a bit about the message that Amy or Ewing brought? Yeah, she certainly crammed a lot in what was less than, I think, 19 minutes. Wow. She was challenging the culture, essentially, how we have, in her words, lost the art of forgiveness. We've lost its significance. There's a, a, a mindset or an attitude that to forgive is to somewhat downplay the harm that's happened to an individual or a community. Forgiveness is seen as weak. But she was also talking about the importance of how civil justice and forgiveness are not mutually exclusive. And she just posed a question that she kept coming back to in her address of, how is it possible to not minimize the harm that has taken place to an individual, to a community who has been wronged and yet not dehumanize them in the process of that? And of course, it would be wrong not to center your message and focus on the person of Jesus because he perfectly balances that how, you know, by his wounds, we've been healed, that at the cross of Calvary, we know perfect justice, eternal justice in that sense that each of us undeserving nothing in ourselves that makes us right before a holy god but it's got jesus has made it possible for us to be reconciled to the father and in this life where we have been wrong that we can have confidence that eternal justice will take place that actually we don't need to invoke revenge upon others and so i won't take all the sound bites because i know P peter was tweeting away at that moment but it was a great a great challenge and a great opportunity to talk about the atonement and the person and the majesty of who jesus is in that space amongst 700 individuals yeah wow did you get a sense of how that went down in the room were people talking about it afterwards yeah my uh media, one of the MPs had no idea who the keynote speaker was so as being somewhat of a translator of here it is in the booklet of who she is and her background and towards the end he said what an inspiring message he was like I had no idea who Dr Amy Oring was he was a Christian MP but said he left inspired and encouraged and I think he appreciated that there was kind of that gospel message that was shared in what is his place of worship that beyond a parliamentary prayer breakfast, it's probably difficult to see the name of Jesus be, be elevated in that way. So yeah, there was definitely a sense of encouragement by it. It speaks right into attention that we've seen, you know, throughout, well, we just see it all the time, don't we, in politics, in, in geopolitics, in situations across the world, that some of which we're going to talk about today, of how, how do you match up the gospel message of forgiveness and grace whilst whilst the need to carry out justice and and the need for there to be justice systems even though we know they're not perfect it's such a tension isn't it 
It was, and I think she navigated that well. She talked a little bit about her own story at the start and, and of being involved in and close with people who had suffered abuse. She wanted to absolutely own that. But I also really liked the way she talked about the kind of echoes of the deeper story in our search for justice, in our talking of forgiveness in this cultural moment, there's echoes of a deeper story. And actually, we all got a booklet at the, the prayer breakfast about the architecture of the of the Palace of Westminster and the House of Parliament. And that might seem a strange link, but part of the thing is they're deeply written into the DNA, into the fabric of the building, are the fact that it is a chapel in parts, that it has these verses and texts written within it, and that they the echoes, as Amy was saying, of the deeper story are right throughout that building. Now, there are moments where I don't think they're adhering to that and we want to call them out in that, but actually it's written into the fabric and DNA. And so she was pulling that too to say, we have these desires for something more. It's like Tom Wright's book. I've forgotten the name of it. Somebody might be able to help me remind, you know, for the, the better, not the better story, but the echoes of the deeper story. Again, the calls for justice and beauty, the things that we see in the world around us are always calling us to the echoes of this deeper story. And I think Amy did that really well to bring both Christians and those who aren't yet Christians into the conversation. Wow, it sounds like a brilliant time. Am I right in thinking people, if they wanted to, could watch it online? Yes. I made that up. You are. No, it should be available on YouTube. And Tom Wright's book is called Simply Christian. <laughs> well done. Okay, let's move into the news stories of the week. On Saturday morning, Yevgeny Borgorzhin, the leader of the Wagner Group, began a mutiny on Putin and said that they would march to Moscow. If you're not aware, the Wagner Group is a mercenary group outside of the Russian military that has been fighting for Russia in Ukraine. It's made up of ex-prisoners and people that, that Russia doesn't want to include in its army, and yet Putin has said that they completely fund the Wagner Group. They've been responsible for many, many atrocities and have kind of been Russia's left hand in various conflicts. But Prigozhin basically denounced the war, denounced Putin, and he started making this journey to Moscow. Somewhere along the way, something changed and he ended up in Belarus heading for exile instead. It looks like the Wagner Group in its current form is coming to an end. Peter, where's the story at now and how significant is this in the Russia-Ukraine conflict moving forward? So I think the honest answer is, I don't know. Mm. I don't think anybody knows. I don't think we know if any of the things you've said are true, not because we don't you, Joe, <laughs> because almost none of it can be truly verified. I mean, I, I know some of us on here are pretty close to kind of news junkies and following on Saturday, which is fascinating, trying to explain to my kids why I find this so interesting. There was a coup on the go in Russia, and then it stopped short, and then he's maybe in exile. Have we actually seen him? Can we verify any of this? And at its core, Putin is an agent of chaos. And he's got this guy, Vladislav. Vladislav Surkov used to be his main guy. He was a theater empresario who was an advertiser and was Putin's key advisor for many, many years. And Putin loves chaos. He loves misinformation. He loves lies. That is what he plays in. And it's almost impossible to know if anything he's saying is true. And, you know, just to riff on a theme for me, but that goes back to the chaos themes of Genesis 1. He loves chaos because in the chaos, he finds pathways through. So I'm not convinced that we know almost anything about what happened on Saturday. Fascinating as it is, and I certainly don't think we know the outcome. And all the wars he does, he loves non-linear warfare. He catches people every time we can think we know what's going on. It's disinformation, it's disruption of our elections, it's disruption in the field of warfare. He uses criminal forces, information, technology, economics, diplomacy, pulls you in, pulls you out, pushes you out. I mean, 
And that is what he plays in. And then other people are learning from it. And so that's where I think we see the ripple effects is people realize that chaos creates space for the strong man to come through. And that's what Putin has played in. There will be consequences, but I'm not sure anybody can categorically say what they'll be. I mean, the Wagner group, you're right. There's a lot that we can't say for certain, but it certainly seems like the Wagner group we use to create momentum in Ukraine by Russia. And they, it would seem they have now gone and you would, again, it would seem that that's going to destabilize things for Russia. And Danny, talk, talk to us about goodies and baddies in geopolitics. There's a desire to put a neat narrative on this story. And I know, you know, it's not as simple as that. So yeah. talk to us about that. Well, it gets very complicated because Prigozhin and his mercenaries were part of the, the war against the Ukraine. They were firmly on the side of the baddies. And then suddenly he was turning against Putin. So people were like, oh, maybe we should cheer him on. Maybe we should. He's the person that's going to help bring down Putin. But that, that gets very, very messy because is my enemy's enemy, my friend? Well, possibly in some simple utilitarian thing. But as Peter said, it feeds into this chaos that just builds and builds. And I think over over the decades of geopolitics, we've seen some of the mess of side switching that's happened. I, I think one of the most notable examples was when the United States backed Iraq in the Iran-Iraq war in the 1980s. They saw Iraq as, as the way of countering the, the growing power of the regime in Iran. But then suddenly Iraq became the enemy. And so we, well, the first Gulf War in the early 1990s. And you see these sides shifting where countries try and back one horse and then realize that actually maybe that horse isn't going to help them. So they they shift to another one. And I think that creates some of the, the challenges, challenges for us in knowing how to navigate and to understand these situations, because we want to put people into simple camps of goodies and baddies. And it just doesn't work like that. These forces get far too complicated. And you see the the disruption and the violence of warfare. And yeah, we want the simple, whose side should we be on? And it's it's rarely as easy as that. So Putin, uh, Gary Kasparov is a the former world chess champion, a real critic of Putin. And I think he's got this great line. I'm pretty sure it's him. Information warfare is not about creating an alternate truth, but eroding our basic ability to distinguish truth at all. And I think that goes to the heart of so much of these conversations. Ukraine, Russia, lots of these things. And then it bubbles out the American election, Biden, Trump, Hunter Biden, all these things. We just don't even know. And it doesn't matter for Russia or the, the forces of chaos. We're all doubting whether anything we read anymore is true. And that is part of their aim. And it's incredibly destabilizing. Every week we meet to plan what we're going to talk about on cross-section and where we think the conversation should go. Although you might be able to tell we don't completely script these conversations. Um, <laughs> But one of the things we were talking about is, is there is there another response for Christians other than simply pray for peace? You know, how do, how do we think through these things when it's kind of evil? Yeah, again, that's very simplistic terms, but but evil working against evil. How, how, how do we process that? How do we respond to that? Well, I think we want to find actions as well, because... Praying for peace is essential. We we cannot neglect that. But in other areas of life, we we don't just want to pray. We want to see how can we contribute to 
the incoming of God's kingdom? How can we act and live in a way that sees justice done? So how can we be peacemakers in this context? And like, I don't know. There is nothing that I can do today or tomorrow that is going to help bring peace in Ukraine and in Russia. But I think the the ambition that we do do more than just pray is important, that we are able to take actions that seek justice and pursue justice and pursue peace in our world. At the same time, while we we hope and we, we have a sure and a certain hope that justice will be done and we have hope in in God's coming kingdom where wars will cease and suffering will end. So we we pray for peace. We have hope that peace will come, but we also look for look for ways that we can work for peace in our world today. Mm. I think I think part of this story, as we've been just talking and even reflecting on our pre-chat yesterday, I think it challenges me in when I say peace and my theology around peace, I often think that it will be not using the word, that it will be easy, that it will be conflict-free, that it would be violent-free, that, that death wouldn't take place, that, that the enemy will realise their error and withdraw from power and be like, I've done wrong and I should go to the courts and I should be held accountable. And the truth is that, you know, just this passage of scripture that keeps coming to my mind, you know, the kingdom suffers violence and the violent take it by force. Matthew 11, and just reading again and again in Kings and in the prophet Isaiah, just how, where a city, where a nation chooses to lead through idolatry, through power, through pride, the repercussions are sadly suffering, struggle, warfare, civil warfare, all of these sorts of things. And to pursue peace in the correct order that God would desire takes conflict. There is conflict that's involved. There are, you know, there's mechanisms of international law that wants, wants to, you know, create environments and spaces whereby less violence is taken by this. But there, there is a reality that this is going to be a struggle. Putin won't step down. Who knows what? Progovin is going to do next who knows what other dissent is going to happen within the Russian army but either way peace to Ukraine and even within Russia is not going to come with ease there's something about the church recognizing that whilst we're not called to take up arms there's going to be a struggle there's going to be a resistance there's going to be an opposition to that and so our warfare's you know our it's spiritual warfare it's our weapons isn't the swords and the guns and the military stuff. It is consistent prayer. It's devotion to the word. It's proclamation of the gospel. And in God's due time, the day of judgment ultimately lies with him. So for me, it's an imperfect answer of how, how we get there. But I think there's that reality that we praying is important, but there's going to be a struggle in that. And I just think to personalize it one more level again because i totally agree is let your yes be yes as in it's really easy to get into the world of spin and just slight deviations and this is where the chaos and the misinformation comes let's not say that every single service was the best service ever or that every single organization we work for is the best organization ever or this is the most important campaign or the government's doing x when and exaggerate 
like there's a real integrity call to us to be really truthful and to do that well. And that's small, but actually incredibly significant because it's really easy to get sucked into the game where everybody else is exaggerating and slightly spinning something. We're like, okay, let our yes be yes and be known for people who say it absolutely as it is and tell it straight in a world of chaos. That's incredibly important. Yeah. And I think, I think the, the right Christian reaction to pray for peace, for a large part, that is what we can do when the conflict is countries away. But I guess it could be Christians could take that as an excuse for being passive when the conflict is much closer to home on issues of justice, various things that we've talked about on the podcast, whether that's violence against women, racism, all sorts of different issues. It's not always enough. Just we we should take everything to the Lord in prayer and pray for peace. But that can't be an excuse for, for inactivity to remain silent and that's so different from we've got to not conflate that with the old testament pattern of justice and and god delivering justice through his nation because we live in a time post jesus where as we said jesus is the the one who will ultimately carry out justice but we follow a god of of justice and and a, as he said peter a god of truth and it's our role as christians to to, to speak up in those ways. So in the Wagner story, we're dealing with, again, simplified terms, but a physical threat of evil. And now we address a somewhat more theoretical threat as we look to yet another AI story in the news. As Alicia wisely said, the Christian moral framework isn't just about tangible and physical, it's also about the spiritual and unseen. Now, if you are a consistent listener to Cross Section, you will have heard me say a couple of weeks ago that I really, we were talking about what stories we basically protect ourselves from when it comes to following the news. And I said that stories that involve children, I really struggle with. And this is where I confess, I have not read all the details of this story. But you might have seen the headline that AI has been used to generate child pornography. A horrendous sentence to say. And Danny, I'm going to pass to you to fill us in on some of the details of this story. So we probably do need somewhat of a trigger warning on this story. But the BBC have conducted an investigation and have found that paedophiles are using artificial intelligence to create and sell lifelike child sexual abuse material. So you can create AI images. So you can put a prompt into a piece of software and, and you can create all sorts of real looking images of things that didn't happen. So I've seen one of Trump walking through the Red Sea. They're composite images that draw things together, that they use things that are out there to create something new and something that didn't exist. And what's been used in this context is that technology has been used to create images of child sexual abuse. Now, these aren't images of real people, but they're they're still illegal and it, or certainly in the uk uh, they are dealt with and treated in the same way as a real image of of someone who's underage would be what complicates it is that they're often created in japan where cartoons and drawings of children involved in sexualized activity isn't illegal but then they're they're traded and sold and there's been 
some question on some of the platforms where these images have been sold on. But it does just highlight some of the ways that the technology is being used for all sorts of, well, frankly, awful ways. I think it's important that we address a hopefully somewhat redundant question, but I think it's important to re- address it and anyone feel free to answer. Some people might wonder if no real children are involved, then why is it harmful? It, well, it is just to be clear, because I, I think we have a misconception. Like, so the victims in, in the normal child abuse scenario, the main people harmed, but we seem to forget that it dehumanizes the abuser. And it's hard for us to think about that sometimes initially. This kind of forces that back on us to remember that actually the act of abuse dehumanizes both people in the equation. Now, very obviously the victims, and that is first in our mind. There are no real victims here, as you say, on the face of it. What it's doing is it's curating our habits. It's changing who we are. Some of us actually had the privilege of listening to John Wyatt, who's thought a lot about AI. And one of the things he was talking about is it's persuasion. It knows us. It knows how to push our buttons and it gets us interested in something. And once, of course, you're interested in that thing, you can bridge across to real life. But also it's shaping our kind of pseudo-intimacy and giving us ideas around this. So AI is going to be really good at that because it knows us so well and knows how to connect with us. So it's doing all that shaping. And I remember, I think it was Rachel Gardner who led Romance Academy saying that actually pornography, and we're not talking about child abuse, it's just pornography in general, working with young people, can be as disruptive for people because we are such an image-driven culture. So in some ways, it's almost as bad, if not worse, than than other things that happen between people because that stays in the mind and you can't get away from it. It's playing in your mind. We are so image driven and that's part of who we are. So again, that's another reason why this is so harmful because it's setting up a set of desires and images in somebody's mind that are likely to play out in real life. And so it's dehumanizing. Yes, the abuser here, but they are humans too. And that's a tough conversation we also need to wrestle with. And just picking up on what Peter was saying, John Wyatt spoke about how AI has operated and how it's developed and changed, how initially it is often used to attract our attention and to distract us from other things, algorithms that hold our attention, but it moves into a a mode of persuasion and it's trying to persuade us of things. And then the next step is that it creates intimacy and a, a false sense of intimacy around that because it's not based on anything real. But back to Joe, your original question around this, I think it, it plays on an idea that kind of harm is individualized, that it's, just one person and a victim and an abuser. And yes, in often cases, that is the primary relationship of harm. But it we sometimes restrict harm, say, well, if it hasn't harmed a person, it's not harmful. But that doesn't account for the, the societal impact of it, of how it affects what we think of and how ideas are normalised and people access perhaps images that are composites but then does that change how they think of people who are real people how does it affect their relationships and their their friendships and their family and i think all of these things we can't just think of things now so narrowly on an individual basis we need to think of the wider community and societal impact yeah thank you so i want to widen this slightly from this particular story and this particular issue to a wider story of ai love when I can do this, referring to a listener email that we received from Lee. Lee has written in and saying, I think it's interesting how the creators of AI are now the ones warning us about its power and how they now feel lost and helpless in controlling it. For me, it's an interesting image of where the secular world is at 
at the moment and how we are ultimately powerless over huge things like this. I know without my faith, I would struggle to not feel anxious and overwhelmed when reading these types of headlines. So I suppose there may be an opportunity for us as Christians to bring that positive message of the gospel and of purpose in our life to the whole conversation. I also think it's important for us as Christians to show caution in using and championing AI in its current form. Whilst it has obvious benefits, I think we could take a position in this as the Christian church. So I guess my question is, what would you say to Lee? And how do we prepare as Christians for the whole world of moral dilemmas that are going to come our way as AI develops and becomes more normalised? Nice, easy question for you. Anyone, anyone feel free to jump in. I think Lee's spot on. I mean, it's just, it's so massive, isn't it? And we'll probably return to this, like, what is AI? AI is everything and it's too simplistic to say it's good or it's bad. I think the Amish have a lot to teach us. Sometimes people perceive the Amish as anti-technology. They're absolutely not. They just don't presume it's good straight away. In fact, they kind of almost presume it's problematic and then test it and see. And only once they've ascertained which bits are useful, do they take them in? And there's probably something in that for us to think about. And I think it it opens up loads of ethical questions. So I think we don't have good ethical frameworks. And this is a place, and again, John Wyatt was encouraging us during the week, where we can enter the conversation and talk about morality or ethics or rights or wrongs. I mean, people go, oh, well, that's clearly wrong over here, AI and, and the child abuse story. But but maybe this thing's okay. And what's in between? But they don't have a framework. People are almost acknowledging we don't know on what basis we would make this decision. Um, And so at least we can come in and say, well, let's think about it. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human in a world full of intelligent machines? Some of which are good, some of which are bad. And let's drive through that conversation. So if nothing else, we don't have to have all the answers. No one else has. What a fascinating place to start the conversation about ethics and what it is to be a human being. Alicia's sitting with her finger just hovering on her mute button. Is she coming in? Is she coming in? Come on, solve this for you us. Know, do you know why I'm, I'm, I'm hovering? Because my mind has just gone completely into a different space. And I'm like, is this helpful? But I'll give it a go and then I'll trust Joe will edit out if it's totally pointless. My thought, or I don't know if you saw the Matrix final film, The Revolution, The, the Machines. This is before your time, Joe. Uh, you might be a little bit too young for The what? Matrix. I anyway, it's just Neo, Neo, who is a, I don't know, some type of messiah, but it's a conversation or it's AI pre-AI in the sense that the machines take over and it's, they take over by force, there's violence, they, you know, want to destroy the colony, but Neo, who is the chosen one, must go to the somewhat outer world in order to bring redemption. And how does he do it? He gives his life as a ransom for the people. Go watch it. You need to watch all three of The Matrix. And I sit there and there's something about AI where I'm just like, humanity is longing for a world in which they can create, inverted commas, a utopia. Something where there's meaning, where there's purpose, where there's fulfillment, and they're creating it using their intellect, their intelligence, their creativity. And there then comes a point when they're outdone by the work of their creation. And it just encourages me as a Christian, as a member of the global church, that what we're chasing after isn't AI, but the kingdom of God. And that is the kind of the apologetic, the moment that we need to speak into this culture in this this time that 
the kingdom of God is far outreaching. The one that Christ is going to come back and bring heaven to earth, reconcile all people to himself, bring peace, harmony, no tears. The lion will lay down with the lamb. That isn't AI generated, but it's a kingdom that I am longing for. And it's one that I'm pursuing after. And it doesn't come through violence. It doesn't come from manipulation. It doesn't come through depraved thinking that is creating AI pornography of children. It's so much better than that and enriching than that. And so that's where my mind's going with this conversation. I think the church needs to talk about the kingdom of God more intentionally, debunk every attempt of humans intention of creating an artificially intelligent world yes that is never getting cut amen <laughs> yeah i yeah i think you've just kick-started and nailed the the next round of apologetics talks that many many people will need all right let me gather myself this feels like an appropriate moment to say email us we enjoy them as i mentioned at the start we're encouraged by them and they help us think about what are helpful things for us to talk about. So email us cross.section at eauk.org. Let us know what you want to add to this conversation. What should we be talking about? Um, you can also follow us on socials at EAUK News on Twitter, Evangelical Alliance on Instagram. Every week we put out a poll on social media asking for your input that's going to shape our conversations. This week we asked, is not Christianity, which of these value systems should create the ethics of the art of artificial intelligence going forward? Pluralism, humanism, individualism, or other? Any guesses from you three, which ones come top? Other. Individualism. Peter, you're going to weigh in? Uh, individualism. Well, individualism is on zero percent <laughs> and humanism and other are riding side by side at 44 percent those are the sorts of polls that you can be involved in week in week out shaping our conversation to describe got... alicia's reaction to that though <laughs> <laughs> not amused i think it's fair to say despair <laughs> hi alicia hi joe so in this world of hybrid working in which we are now in, I decided to work for my local coffee shop this morning. I went in, I ordered a caramel latte and I got to work. They got me thinking, what else could I get for the price of a coffee? Well, I'm glad that you asked, Joe. For £3 a month, you could become a member of the Evangelical Alliance and truly make a difference to reaching communities with the gospel and strengthening the evangelical voice in government and in policymaking. You'll receive a welcome pack on arrival, more valuable than a caramel latte, and access to our quarterly membership magazine idea on your doorstep. So to find out more, why not visit eauk.org forward slash join us oh brilliant i can't believe we've got to this point of the show already but we are on to story three where we want to talk about lewis capaldi particularly at glastonbury lewis capaldi was performing on the saturday of glastonbury he has been documenting quite literally in a documentary for netflix his journey with mental health and tourettes and how fame and the pressure of a very public life has worked in that and in his performance on the Saturday of Glastonbury 
he actually couldn't finish his set because his ticks from Tourette's became so extreme. And you saw the audience carried his set for him. They all joined in with the lyrics of Someone You Love, all sung in unison the, the rest of the song for him and let him be carried in that way. I think it was a beautiful moment of grace by the audience. Has anyone seen that bit, bit of performance? Yeah, I, I watched some of the performance and, and it was remarkable. And we talked about Lewis Capaldi before on Cross Section, I think. And he is a fascinating figure. He is like the the anti-pop star in some ways. He mm. comes onto the stage even before the things that took place during the set. He's wearing a white t-shirt and black trousers. There's no flashy gimmicks there. He is not who you would imagine to be one of the top stars of Glastonbury. So he kind of confounds many expectations already. And he clearly was struggling during his set. And But I think and I, I think he, he had taken off some time prior to Glastonbury to say that he wanted to, to do this. And now he said he's going to take more time off in the coming weeks to 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 work through the, the challenges mm. he is facing. And I think it does raise questions of the the pressure that people are on. Like he's on the stage in front of more than 100,000 people. That like You look at the audience and it is just vast. Um, all these people who have come to see you actually, how do you navigate that? How do you manage that? How do you think about that in a way that doesn't kind of puff you up as though, wow, I've made it, but also doesn't fill you with anxiety and dread that, wow, these people are depending on me to deliver something. So I think rightly so many people have had incredible sympathy and empathy with the situation that he's faced, been faced with. Yeah, I I found it quite a remarkable situation. Mm. I've been watching his Netflix documentary and in the first few minutes you hear him say the success made me feel more insecure and more self-conscious of my own abilities talking about how he's sort of the most insecure he's ever been in his life and it made me think is this the pinnacle of what happens when your worth and your identity are riding on you and your abilities and this this has been a big in my circles anyway this has been a big conversation point of this week everyone's saying oh have you seen this what do you think of this and I guess I I was trying to think how do we bring Jesus into that conversation and I I wonder if it's as simple as asking you know if a friend brings up just saying well what what would you what what could you say to him to make him feel better you know what does the world have to offer um so that we don't feel the, the crippling pressure of our identity and our worth starts and ends with us. For sure. That's a, a great contribution, one to share. I think it's you're talking about grace. I think the crowd instantaneously modelled forgiveness as well in a very unusual way because there's other artists that didn't get the same level of care for their performance or or turning up late or not providing the set list. I was definitely moved similarly. Lewis Capaldi isn't someone that I listened to, but to see an individual so broken and so struggling on in the public space and yet was prepared to stand and absorb and not leave the stage and see a crowd and audience kind of willing him on, not just for the set list, but I hope longer term willing him on to, to good and better health, which is what he's taking a, a break for. So... Yeah, I think that there's a great model of how do we come alongside people in their vulnerabilities and in their weakness. And there's an opportunity for us as Christians to mirror 
and to call out the gold in them in spite of their failures and, and their failings at that moment. Yeah, I, I'm not the world's greatest cultural critic on Glastonbury. I'll, I'll confess that up front. But I did read an article in The Guardian about it and how his set displayed. The title was The Best of Human Spirit. I suppose for me, that's what caught me was that I was, it's like the writer was searching for what was going on there. And Amy picked this up. If I bring it around a bit again, it's the Echoes piece. She said, look, why do we have this deep desire for justice in a world that says we're just a random collection of cells? Where does that come from? What is this human spirit in a kind of evolutionary scientific world? We do believe there's a connection and there's something more and we keep harking back. And it's like even in that article and in that moment on stage, there's the echo of something more. A guy who's standing up there with his Tourette's and his disability front and center and the crowd want to back him and support him. And so the word is, or the language he's put is human spirit. And I'm wondering that that feels like it's clutching for something more, something transcendent, something beyond ourselves. And in that moment, I'm like, hey, let's have a conversation about that for sure. I think there is something more, but I'm not sure you can give me a story that accounts for that. And again, this for me is where it gets exciting in the intersection of these cultural stories in what and we're talking I too, about. I'm not a huge Lewis Capaldi fan. Not that I don't like it. I just don't know much about him. I actually think he's pretty good. But I've just looked up the names of his albums. His first album or first studio album was called Divinely Uninspired to a Hellish Extent. But his follow-up released this year was called Broken by a Desire to be Heavenly Sent, which seems to sum up the challenge that he's been facing and that we're talking about here. This desire to ha to be something more but not sure where that comes from and how we anchor that and what we do with that mm. I think I think it's really interesting thinking about the culture of celebrity documentaries like this from Lewis Capaldi from Ed Sheeran from Taylor Swift from others they kind of break down that unhealthy culture of celebrity where we see these people as not real people but actually see behind the wall and yeah the problems that they're facing and I think because of that, it allows an audience to feel a lot more compassion for the celebrity. Uh, I I want to kind of give Lewis Capaldi a big hug and say, you don't have to you don't have to carry the weight of this on your own. I think when it comes to talking to people about Jesus, I I used to think that evangelism was just about getting you know the four steps of the gospel in creation, fall, Christ, response. You know that's what you had to do every time. But actually hearing people say that that great ways to go about sharing the gospel is just to talk about what is good about knowing Jesus, what is good about being part of a church family. And in my personal testimony, realizing that if I trusted Jesus, if I accepted that I was his daughter, that I was a daughter of the Lord who created everything, what a relief that I don't have to be responsible for my own worth. I don't have to create and cultivate my own identity. I have a ready-made one given to me. So I guess as we finish series five of Cross-Section, as we take a break over these next couple of months of summer, let us encourage you to, to go out to your friends and to your communities and speak about the goodness of knowing Jesus, the relief of being shielded in his grace, covered in his love, and what a difference that makes to your life. Until we see you again, goodbye for now. Hi, it's Peter here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Cross Section. If you liked it, can I encourage you to click subscribe, review the podcast, share the episode on social media, or tell your friends so that they can enjoy it too.
And don't forget, you can email us at cross.section at eauk.org. See you next time.